Meanwhile... Slack, what is it? Well, if you have to ask, you will never know. You were born with original Slack, an infinite supply of it. There's so many mysteries I need to have solved! Now, if the Korean couple can't speak English, why were they doing a crossword puzzle where the answer to 23 down was Enigma spelled backwards? What does it mean? Well, hopefully we can shed a little light on that mystery, Homer, by providing a little insight into the 23 Enigma and the church of the subgenius icon Bob Dobbs, who are both referenced in Max Hedrolem. And to do that, we'll be speaking with friend of the show, Blank Brian, who has a little experience with both of these phenomena. Thanks to this week's Max Hedrom Mini. Hey Maxi. Brought to you by 20 minutes into the future. It's a Max Hedrom Mini. A Maxi. Enjoy. Good hello, and welcome to 20 minutes into the future. Episode number 23. Can you believe it? Has it really been that long? Since the beginning of this show, I have considered these subjects for this episode, not only to help bring awareness to them, but given that we have done a bit of playing with numbers when it comes to our own program, it seems that we should try and align certain topics with certain episodes for everyone's benefit. That does seem reasonable. Both Bob Dobbs and the 23 Enigma predate Max Hedrum as cultural memes that were floating around among sci-fi fans and other people who traveled the outer edges of culture. Around 1960, William S. Burroughs met a man in Tangiers who ran a boat, named Captain Clark, who was connected to the number 23, and who died on the same day as another Captain Clark from Florida, whose flight number on the plane he crashed was number 23. All of which inspired Burroughs to begin keeping notes on things connected to this magical number. In 1965, the original Discordians began circulating their book, The Principia Discordia, which also ruminated on the number 23, and the mysteries connected to it. At some point in the early 70s, Burroughs related his experiences with the number 23 to Robert Anton Wilson, and Wilson, inspired now by Burroughs and the Discordians, used the 23 Enigma as a driving force in the plot to his Illuminatus trilogy, originally published in 1975, a book which even quoted sections of the Principia Discordia in the larger narrative. Later, Wilson tells the story of hearing it all from Burroughs in a 1977 article for a 40 in Times publication. And a few years after that, Throbbing Gristle record the song the Old Man Smiled, released in 1980, relating the same story that Burroughs told Wilson, most likely inspired by the 40 in Times article. Everybody got that? It was very clear that by the early 80s, the meme of the 23 Enigma had spread far and wide the pre-internet way, among punks and sci-fi fans, and others who liked coincidences and strange numerological wonders and who ran in the same social circles as Wilson and Burroughs. In many ways, 23 became a cultural hobo code for the kinds of oddballs and interesting characters that one might want to associate with, if that, too, was your interest. If you even knew enough to mention 23 in the right circles, it could help you divine where the nearest sci-fi club meetup might be. Gordon, Latu, Dorada, Nikto. Or where the punks might be congregating? Punks in the world do not wall up! 
Give it a bit of the willy! Or, at the very least, who among your friends has the right kind of taste when it comes to literature and music? You're the one for me. Inspired by all of this, and also participating in a lot of the same cultural communication that was happening at the time, Ivan Stang began to disseminate his own subgenius literature in 1979, not only hitting upon some of the same sorts of ideas as the Discordians, but expanding upon them to include a religious icon, J.R. Bob Dobbs, represented by a typically American 1950s piece of clip art with a distinctive pipe at a jaunty angle. What does it mean? What does it mean? Stang and other subgenius began creating media and sound collages as part of their regular creative output, and spread them through zines and radio programs. Soon, the search for every imaginable 23, Bob, and Man with Jaunty Pipe reference in pop culture were being used by subgenius members in their media barrages and collages, both in sound and in print, to mimic the same kind of zealous behavior of believers who seem to constantly see Jesus' face in tortilla chips, for example. It's truly America. Much of the dissemination of these memes, both the original 23 Enigma and the iconography of Bob, were done by sci-fi fans and other adherents who were all using fringe culture to communicate with each other. When punk rock began to run in parallel to these ideals, it wasn't long before Bob's head was on a Devo album, until the association with all of these fringe identities mixed into a sort of stone soup that was the cultural broth many weirdos, thrill-seekers, and oddballs were drinking from throughout the 80s and 90s, before this kind of communication jumped almost entirely to the internet, where it has proliferated ad nauseum ever since. In fact, it's hard to find a part of the tech world that hasn't been touched by the subgenius in some way. Many Unix products and pieces of key software that the internet has been built on have names that can be traced back to subgenius references. In 1993, one of the most widely used Linux distributions, Slackware, can trace its name to the subgenius devotion to Slack as a concept, reflecting the maker's desire for an easier to use version of the popular operating system, Linux, in much the same way that the subgenius offer you a much easier to use version of religion. The subgenius backbone to the tech world is so complete that a current professional messaging platform, Slack, used in offices and in corporate businesses internationally, is also a reference to you-know-what, largely without the corporate users even being aware of this connection. Hashtag office life. It seems that, for a couple of silly memes based around number games and an appropriated piece of clip art, these ideas have an incredible amount of staying power in the world around us. The fact that they are both satiric takes on religion and numerology is just icing on the cake. Is 23 any more significant than any other number that recurs in our lives in some way, that begins to take on significance to the individual as a result, in spite of the fact that it's just a number? That's a very good point. What, if anything, does this have to do with the following conversation with our friend Blank Brian? Who really can say? With me as usual, of course, is my co-host Heather. How you doing out there? Hi, everybody. How are you doing, Austin? I'm doing okay. 
Well, you know, uh, the lava lamps are still firing up, so I'm not quite at 100%, but uh, maybe this next cup of coffee will help. It's definitely going to help. I'm excited. We have a very special guest today, someone who's been on the program before, who we at one time addressed as Blank Brian. But today, correct me if I'm wrong, instead we have Archpope St. Brian of the Eternal Face Palm of the Church of the Subgenius joining us here today on 20 Minutes in the Future. Hi, Brian. Hello. How are you doing? Doing great. Happy X Day. Oh, yeah. It was just a few, uh, it was about a week ago or so? Announcer Mitch here. Austin is a little off. This conversation was recorded on the 13th of July, 2023. X Day is typically celebrated on July 5th every year. The event was, in the early 80s, prophesied to be the day that the Yeti would return to the Earth, eliminate all the normals, and allow all the subgenius who have paid their membership fees to join them on their spaceships. The original X Day was supposed to take place in 1998. Nothing like what the subgenius described occurred that day. Since then, July 5th has become a subgenius holiday, with destination celebrations, with bands and other kinds of entertainment for members, well off the corporate radar. The hope is that the original year was wrong, and that, someday, the 5th of July, 1998, will actually occur as it was supposed to. In the meantime, there's plenty of reasons to have another party in the woods with your favorite bands playing, and call it a religious celebration. One of the principal topics we are uh, curious about is the, the 23 Enigma, which, um, I mean, it, there's a very specific one tied to that number, but I mean, I think we've all experienced this, where you start seeing a number recurring in your life, and then you start ascribing it uh, a certain amount of significance. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, um, I mean, I, I know um, uh, Negative Land kind of landed on the number 17. Uh, the members of that group were you, constantly citing that as a reference because they kept seeing it in their own lives uh, outside of that. Um, and so uh, they ascribed a little more meaning to it, perhaps, than there is to the number 17 in general. <laughs> I mean, it's just a number. Uh, yeah, for me, it's 1111 when I see that on the clock. I don't know why, mm. but it always gets me. I'm like, ooh, 1111, make a wish. And that's my birthday. See, maybe that's why. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. you're, you're, uh, yeah. I mean, eleven, eleven does recur a few times, uh, just naturally in the world around us. But it isn't like an all the time thing, because like I'm in bed often before eleven p.m., so I miss that one. You know what I mean? Oh, you you have reasonable sleeping hours, is what you're telling me. <laughs> no, I have a job. <laughs> so <do> I. <laughs> yeah, but they make me be places at a very early time in the morning. Oh and, uh, boy! Yeah, no seven seven thirty is uh, very very early. What time is uh, half ten? Half ten? Half ten? I've never been up at half ten. <laughs> what happens? What I have gotten from uh, the 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 uh, subgenius over the years is uh, th- this um this notion of like. In America, we really put a high value on working hard, mm, on, grinding, on 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 making impressions with the boss, on being seen out in uh, the world, doing things and having hobbies and whatnot. And uh, the subgenius kind of are working in opposition to that. <laughs> not that they're not that they're like actively tearing things down, but just that they want themselves to kind of set an example for what you really should be doing with your life. <laughs> Right, just do, just do as little as possible. Slack off, pull the wool over your own eyes, and just take a nap. 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah, they they are more about um, uh, uh, diluting oneself in a way uh, than um, actually kind of self actualization. Freedom of choice. In my mind, I always thought of it as kind of like the, um, uh, it's like the key to figuring out, oh, you can publish your own things. You can make your own radio show. You can kind of get involved in the dissemination of uh, thought and ideas. And it, and it doesn't have to be complicated. Like, you don't have to be a part of the system. You can just go to a Kinko's or <laughs> wherever there's a Xerox machine and, and suddenly you are a publisher too. You know, suddenly you are a church too. <laughs> it was dangerous because I was actually working at a company that made copiers when I started <laughs> joining the uh, Church of Subgenius. <laughs> and my job was to design the tests for the copiers for like people to run just thousands and thousands of copies on these copiers. Mm -hmm. And they started being zines. Right, of course. <laughs> I just made my own zines. Like I had other people copy them for like you know thousands and thousands of copies. I mean, I mean, it, it is actually a brilliant testing of those devices because zines do have such a varied uh, contrast between pages, right. and you know, yeah, that's great. <laughs> I mean, that's some pretty high level stuff there. We all do our part to keep the wheels of capitalism grinding to a halt. Where did you two first see a image of J.R. Bob Dobbs? Yeah, I mean, the, the first time I learned about Search of the Subject, the first time I was introduced to Bob was it, he was an ASCII art. He was, you know, just, just, just an image on like a chat room on CompuServe back in like 82. And, uh, and, uh, and you know, I, I had an idea that there was just some weird thing that people were just copy and like eventually see it every once in a while here and there but mm -hmm. uh, it didn't really didn't really click in until like about maybe 1996 that actually <laughs> sounds right because i feel like i probably saw bob on some t-shirts or something in the late 80s but i became like aware that there was a thing that was the church of the subgenius more toward i would say Probably like 92 because I was still in high school. I do remember that. They also had a lot of um, uh, MTV commissioned them to do these bumpers. Mm -hmm. um, and they had a few of them that was played on MTV during like late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, I mean, I mean, certainly Devo was my ground zero for it because they would use the um, Bob Dobbs head on artwork not just on their albums, but in their videos. And so like the head would be around for a while before you would connect what it was. You just mm -hmm. see this icon, you know? Yeah. And it was a pretty right. iconic image, which is why with the Max Headroom connection, when the writers say they weren't thinking about Bob with like the way Cheviot appears, mm. somebody was, they had to have been because it was around, it was popular. It was in the zeitgeist. It was counterculture. It was subversive. Like, yeah, it can't just be a coincidence. Cheviot, he did. Cause he looked so much like Bob. Right. Well, and, and I think, I mean, certainly a, a little bit of credit probably goes to the costume designer more than anything, because, you know, upon hindsight, the UK version of Cheviot is less Bob-like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But there's something about George Coe and his costuming, and when he reaches for that pipe, 
he looks so 50s American that it just like he becomes Bob in a way mm-hmm. that is very and and I think it's the recurring like holding onto that pipe, putting it at the jaunty angle, like it is, you know, it seems very intentional at least from for George Coe and the costume designer, like at least they seem to be aware of it. <laughs> I mean, somebody had to be like, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying the writers specifically wrote him that way, but there's there's it's just too much of a resemblance for it to be a a mere coincidence. We're through the looking glass here, people. Uh, Let's talk a little bit more specifically about the 23 Enigma, um, because this predates uh, both uh, subgenius and uh, these kind of faux church uh, concepts as a a cultural thing. Um, But it is something that uh, I think all of us are familiar with to one degree or another. 23 skadoo! Certainly the 23 Enigma can seem a little impenetrable, one, because it's old, Two, because it, it, it involves uh, numerology, because they really lean on the, if you add things together, it equals 23. And then, of course, everything leads down to five eventually, the law of fives and all this stuff. And it can feel very like, oh, dear. like Yeah, I'm not learning all that. That sounds like work. <laughs> exactly. Once you start it's doing math. It's too close to math. Like, stop. Lord, now. Announcer Mitch here. We're reaching the point in the show where you'll start to notice some editing choices that hinted a much longer chat between Brian, Heather, and Austin. Their original conversation was supposed to last 30 minutes, and they ended up talking for almost two hours. Humans. What are you gonna do with their incessant yammering? I guess I'll muddle through, somehow. Anyway, in trying to jettison the irrelevant tangents and keep the most useful bits, there is evidence of the longer conversation in this maxi. To catch you up to speed, they had digressed into some of the patterns that people have noticed with regards to the number 23. Quite a lot of nonsense, really. And then got into the tendency for these patterns to sound conspiratorial in nature, all part of satirizing the more ridiculous aspects of religious symbolism and numerology. We'll pick up the meandering chit-chat from there. I mean, I think the internet has been a place where that feeling that you are sensing a pattern that is leading you somewhere is unfortunately what has led to kind of the modern um, uh, uh, changing of conspiracy culture to become much more far right. Whereas in the 70s, uh, it was a much more far left kind of endeavor and a much more uh, kind of like um, humorous kind of endeavor. Um, I think, uh, unfortunately, people now like uh, Proud Boys and Oath Keepers and whatnot have sucked the fun out of all of the conspiracy culture because now they're actually trying to prove some of it is true and, and, and follow it to the, the bitter, violent end. And it's, uh, it's, 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 it's less fun when it's not just like, hey, guys, did you read this thing about the Yeti? It's really funny. Mm-hmm. Here, I'll, I'll show you. It's really, check this out. They, they, these guys think the Yeti exists. <laughs> you know, like that seems like much more tame by comparison <laughs> to <laughs> what's happening now. You ruined the one good thing I had. Anytime that you are trying to poke fun at something through satire, you run the risk of people not getting the joke. And yeah. Certainly, the subgenius and Discordians have suffered from this, even in the 70s, where, like, they say, like, oh, yeah, we're a religion, and they're smirking the whole time, and people are like, I don't get it. And they're like, come on, guys. <laughs> and, 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 as, and as I've been saying, I was saying once, it's an anti-religion religion. It's an anti-corporation corporation. It's a anti-profit 
profit-making thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I appreciate that, though, because at least when it comes to religion, like, they all are, but they just pretend they aren't. So at least the subgenius is like, oh, we're a not-for-profit that totally wants to profit. $40, please. Yeah, they, they really mentioned the 40 bucks up front first stuff a lot like they want you to know before you have bought in no there is a buy-in <laughs> you know I, I like that transparency i'm completely here for that yeah i'd buy that for a dollar and, and i think we talked about this before but i'll mention it again the, uh, uh humorously they're usually trying to work in opposition to uh mainstream culture in ways that are funny and so for the longest time they embraced all of uh, faux science uh quackery uh nonsense uh uh and this was of course a, a really funny idea in the 70s to embrace anything that's not true um of course in the modern age where there's so much uh adherence to uh, spreading disinformation uh the subgenius did the only logical thing which was to completely embrace science for the first time ever uh, and uh, they did this, I think, in light of Trump's uh, election uh, in 2016, where they, the official church position after that was, okay, now we embrace all science in all forms, and we adhere to it because it's real. <laughs> and, and it was it's like, really oh. sad commentary on present times that that could be seen as counterculture to insist that science is real and that, like, that, is a, that is a commentary statement to make yeah that's <laughs> like taking a stand <laughs> right oh how dismaying uh, i know sometimes there are no winners certainly they have always kind of worked in that way where they're trying to poke fun at the extremities of our world and as we all know, the problem when you satirize something that extremely is that you, you you can sometimes sound like you are actually part of the problem, you know. That's Poe's Law. Exactly. <laughs> wow. This one takes me back. Gotta access some older files for this one. In the early 80s era of online culture, Usenet moderators had already hit upon the need to have their users either avoid sarcasm entirely or to clearly mark it as such with the appropriate emoticons. So that clarity of intent could be offered where other social cues, like body language and tone of voice, were not available to help discern the statement's intent. Since the reader can't see you winking when you are typing online, you need to offer some clues to make it clear that you are adding another layer of meaning to your statement. This all began to change in the fall of 1993, or the eternal September, where the number of new users online were being added to online communities at such a high rate. That socializing these new users with the standards and practices of the early Usenet pioneers just was not possible. Suddenly, all new users were making endless newbie gaffes, and the wisdom of the older users kept getting distilled into various internet laws, essentially truisms that you could count on as you continued to live online. In 2005, user Nathan Poe managed to synthesize one of these laws in a comment about creationism, which was later refined to the axiom, Poe's Law. Here's a succinct version. Without a clear indicator of the author's intent, any parodic or sarcastic expression of extreme views can be mistaken by some readers for a sincere expression of those views. In other words, if I can't hear the sarcasm in the words you're writing, you need to add something that helps me understand you. While Poe's law seemed to carry more weight, and is fairly well known in some circles, it seems as if the majority of the culture war issues we are fighting these days come from some groups ignoring the implications of Poe's law. 
while others are making sure to remind people of what it all means. <laughs> Sooner or later, you're going to sound like the church that you were trying to make fun of and exactly. a- start condemning things that seem reasonable and, you know, on and on and on and on. It never stops. It never stops. It never stops. It never stops. Yeah, I mean, Subgenius is a vibe. It's uh, It's got a particular vibe to it, and, it, and I, it's like... Uh, I don't know. Uh, this might be controversial, but I, I call it like like I think of it as more like autism on LSD. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that is a good point. I feel like there's a lot of people who are on the spectrum, but have also discovered drugs, and the subgenius is kind of at the nexus of those of those things. It's like a psychedelic <laughs> autism. <laughs> yeah, interesting. That's a very interesting way of putting it. Um, I mean, I, it, it tracks in terms of my experience, but I, but I have also, and I know Heather and I have bonded on this. I have known some very extreme subgenius who uh, uh, make it difficult to want to be involved. <laughs> yeah, and it is interesting that you, Austin, mentioned that talking at instead of talking to. Another moment where you can tell there was a longer conversation happening. I cut Austin's much longer anecdote about being talked at by a subgenius member where there was clearly no invitation for a dialogue during the interaction. That has been a little bit of my experience. Yeah, and and I think this comes from uh, a few different fronts. As I mentioned before, the satire angle, when you satirize something so closely as uh, Christianity, (laughs) you unfortunately end up incorporating into your performance ideals and and behaviors that are not good. (laughs) (laughs) And then I think for me, so I really don't know what the demographic of listening of listeners for this show is. Again, they had been talking about how the subgenius used radio and there was a small discussion of the hour of slack and puzzling evidence, both long running subgenius radio shows. Specifically, they had been discussing how the hour of slack has run its course after 37 years and aired its last episode in June of 2022 leaving puzzling evidence as the sole surviving terrestrial radio program representing the subgenius. Hosted by one of the original founders, there are countless podcasts online devoted to various aspects of subgenius life, too many to get into here, many of which are great. We recommend quitting your job and devoting your time to those shows. But if there are people who were, for example, young women at any point in their lives, They'll, I think, have this resonate with them because I know I've said like during this show, like, that sounds good to me. I'm really interested in that stuff like that. And that's my vague sense of when I started finding out about the subgenius in the late 80s, early 90s, somewhere around there. I wanted more information. I was actually interested. I had some book or maybe two books. But what I ran into was a lot of dudes wanting to not even mansplain because they weren't mansplaining. They were more like man gatekeeping. <laughs> and for me, yeah. like I would have guys do this in every respect of my life. You know, what to wear, how I should do my hair, what I should be driving, what I should be reading, what I should be eating. And so when there was something else, and this also happened with Dungeons and Dragons, I was very yeah. interested in getting into D&D, but the people who were involved, and this is not to say like it's a monolith or anything, just the individual's, I interacted with were really on the whole like dudes who were like no no girls allowed so that's where i kind of ran into a wall with all of it does that sound pretty accurate i can't speak to the specific 
folks that you encountered, but um, I, I have encountered this before as well, where like you get the member of the subgenius who has kind of gone so far off to one end that they're actually like cleaning their gun while they're listening to the hour of slack, you know, <laughs> we're that like, me so weird. That, 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 that is just a weird concept to me. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it happens, but I mean, like, I mean, this is kind I mean, of like, the, it. <laughs> it, it, this is kind of like the, the, the problem that we're getting at is that like something about calling something a religion clicks something in people's brains in an interesting manner. And like, I think for us, we see it and we kind of go, ha ha, that's an inter- that's a funny book. Give me your zine. I'm, I'm, I'll read about that. that. That'll make an afternoon. What will I think of next? And I think this might be my own particular desire, too, because I like satire. And I find that kind of button pushing to be interesting. Um, but, like, I don't like it when it's on the violent end of the spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like it when it's on the pushy end of the spectrum, you know? I don't like it when it's punching down, when it's poking up. Yes, like, exactly. Like, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, always. And uh, and when it's poking up at, at, at these megachurch uh, preachers, mm-hmm. that's, 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 yeah, that's all good. <laughs> mm-hmm. That is good stuff. Thank you for your service. I feel like I should also mention that, like, you know, we have talked a lot about Stang and Puzzling Evidence, who were two of the early uh, subgenius members, but uh, a, a third uh, member that was also very active in the early days, uh, Chris O, uh, Sister Chris, um, immediately not only got what it was, but began doing subgenius radio and zines uh, in the early days and would have clips from her show played on Hour of Slack and Puzzling Evidence because in these days everybody was sending tapes to each other. Uh, and so uh, depending on what you're looking for in the church of the subject genius, you can also find that other point of view. Um, I always found Chris sister, Chris's shows to be very interesting because it, she was very much bringing this kind of more feminist subgenius Dada angle to things in a way that, uh, whether or not they realized it staying and pulsing evidence just could never get there. <laughs> Better luck next time. Of course, we can't forget the musical connections to 23. The Time Lords from uh, from uh, the KLF. Yeah, the KLF. Uh, um, yeah, they picked that up, um, I think, from the Illuminatus, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, they're they're uh, all about the 23 and creating this this mythos just out of symbol symbolisms that mm-hmm. they created, but kind of has this like feeling of the past that really they created. Yeah, they're very into the numerological games with stuff that they do, and uh, I mean, they they they, they, reti- they retired for twenty three years. They burned a, a million pounds uh, on television, like actual money on television that they had earned from their own music, and refused to talk about it for twenty three years. And then when they did, they had this whole huge show that they did about why they would destroy money in the modern world. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, it was fascinating, but like people thought they were insane because they refused to talk about it. I find that very strange as well, Mrs. Quinn. Very strange indeed. By then, I think most people had kind of realized that they were making a statement about capitalism. <laughs> oh my God, well, you could have done so much with that money. It's like, you can still do that. You just don't need the money. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like money is an idea. We can just help people if we want, but we don't. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, he's got us there, Captain. Like, I think that is the case with most numerological stuff is that, like, you know, for example, Douglas Adams always talks about how he just picked the number 42 randomly for Hitchhiker's Guide. 
And people people are constantly finding examples of 42 references years before Hitchhikers was ever published. And he's like, I've never seen those. I never read them. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, he he picked that number (laughs) simply because it was the most boring number he knew of that meant very little. Right. And had not read Lewis Carroll. And and 23 is like kind of one of those numbers that's like, it doesn't pull up a lot. Like if it was 24, you know, 24 hours in a day or it was 12, you know, you get 12 hours Mm -hmm. and or dozen stuff or, Mm -hmm. uh, or that's why 11 is also kind of like a thing because it's, it's a prime number. It's not, it's not a complete set of something Mm -hmm. and kind of 23 has that kind of, incompleteness to it yeah the the odd number um phenomena where like it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like like i will use a musical term it doesn't feel like it's resolved and yeah it's, it's prime so it's so it's not like it, it comes up in patterns that often it's it's its mm-hmm. own pattern what does it mean what does it mean the people who made max headroom i think are coming from the same kind of subculture I think oh, they yeah. are steeped in all of this stuff. I think they've read a lot of the same novels. And and one of the interesting things about the subgenius is that it was often passed around through science fiction, is that other science fiction artists and authors were talking about this and trading these books and slapping uh, Bob's heads on things and whatnot, um, almost as much for the comedy as for the literature. Um, but... Uh, um, I think these things have something in common because the subgenius feel particularly adept at kind of seeing the near future, <laughs> you know, in a way that Max Hedrum kind of is looking at the near future in a way that science fiction is kind of looking at the near future. Like, I think the subgenius are looking at religion and they're going like, this is the next iteration of faith is that everyone makes their own. Like, why don't we just give them a cookie cutter pattern for doing that (laughs) you know it just might be crazy enough to work there's something about that that feels very science fiction kind of like where it's like instead of people going door to door handing bibles it's like here's your make your own religion kit (laughs) enjoy (laughs) thanks i will but yeah i mean i always kind of felt like a little kinship to them because there is something about they're putting on a show you know, like there's like, let's entertain people. Let's just put on a show. Let's bring in some bands. Let's have an old fashioned uh, uh, religious person get up on stage and preach for a few minutes. You know, there, there's something about it that feels very like, I mean, we're all on radio here. It's like, you know, the show must go on. We got to got to entertain these people. Come on. What, what, what do we got? Fake religion? Let's do it. <laughs> 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 so, I mean, there's something about it that I feel it feels very relatable. Um Especially in the modern age where we're all trying to kind of like figure out what is real anyway. Like, I'm on the side of the person who has been having that conversation for decades. (laughs) We've mentioned this elsewhere, but it bears repeating. Steve and Michael have been fairly open about the fact that there were no intentions made to reference this or include that or to borrow more than William Gibson's basic ideas and Blade Runner's general aesthetic when it comes to making Max Hedrum. With regards to writing the show, they put their heads down, went to work, and didn't stop until they had a finished product. And while it is tempting to look for significance in their hitting upon Network 23, or the fact that the American costumer and George Coe helped push Cheviot's overall appearance in that general direction, realistically speaking, both of these inclusions are most likely accidental at best, and possibly one person's inside joke 
if anything at all. The actor playing Cheviot in the UK pilot only has a passing resemblance to Bob Dobbs, and George Coe's look on set was not necessarily a writing choice, but possibly also a reference to the 50s kind of style that was prevalent everywhere. Certainly, these coincidences are just part and parcel of working in entertainment. Some tropes are older than we think, and almost any number could have been used for the network. Almost any other look could have been attributed to George Coe, and someone somewhere would have thought it was a reference to something else eventually. As pattern-seeking creatures, etc., etc., cliché. But regardless of intention, in the years since Max Hedrum has been on the air, both the visual look of Cheviot and the constant references to Network 23 have made Max Hedrum perfect fodder for subgenius collage artists to pillage for new material to be cut up and included on sympathetic radio shows and in Xerox zines. And in many ways, the satiric mission statement of the subgenius, the 23 Enigma, and Max Hedrum itself are all aligned. They want you to consider the things you have been told about the world around you, and they want you to reconsider them now with new information that might offer a shape that you didn't notice before. They want you to think about all of this, and if it helps you come to your own conclusions, well, mission accomplished. Their overall goal, more than anything, is to give you pause for a moment where the seed of ideas can, hopefully, take hold. And, hopefully, guide you toward the best in weird and wonderful strange culture and pop music. Like, for example, Throbbing Gristle. Until next time, be seeing you. Make sure to support us at patreon.com forward slash Austin Rouge to keep this show alive and to bring you more exciting stories and episodes from the history of the show and the people who made it. Thanks for listening. Be seeing you.
Thank you.